Okay, we got to knock off this fellowship. Hey, welcome to Abundant Life. It is great to have you with us today, and a special welcome to those that are watching at Sandy and are uh, and online. And next week is Messed Up. And I say that because that's the launch of a new sermon series on the life of Joseph called Messed Up. So that's next week. This week is a standalone message, and uh, because of the snow day and all that, everything's been pushed back a little bit. So uh, I thought I'd do something that would be like, appropriate for the new year. It's the first message of the year, and, but I hate resolutions. You know, resolutions make me feel like a loser. They make me feel guilty. I've noticed at the gym that I go to, a trend is that in January, it's really crowded. In February, it's back to normal. So resolutions, I don't think, last. They're not sustainable. I want to talk about something that's more sustainable, and that is priorities and priorities for the, for the next year to live by. But because of the, you know, I'm not... I'm not really great at predicting the future, but here are some predictions that went horribly wrong. This telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. That was a Western Union internal memo in 1876. The horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a fad. That was the president of the Michigan Savings Bank not investing in the Ford Motor Company in 1903. The New York Times in 1936 said, a rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Thomas Watson, chairman of IBM in 1943 said, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. (laughs) A movie producer for 20th Century Fox in 1946 said, television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. In 1939, the U.S. Department of the Interior said that American oil supplies would only last another 13 years. That was back in 1939. In 1968, Paul Ehrlich wrote a book and declared that the battle to feed humanity had been lost. And he predicted that so many millions of Americans would starve to death that by 1999, the U.S. population would decline to 22.6 million million people. I like this one. We don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out. That was Decca Records declining the Beatles in 1962. Can't sing, can't act, can dance little. The president of MGM Studios about Fred Astaire. Now those predictions turned out to be ridiculously wrong. But in honor of what we might face in a new year, and because we're humans, we have limitations when it comes to knowledge. But I can make some predictions to have more confidence in. Regardless of world events, God will still be in control. Jesus will still save sinners. The Holy Spirit will still indwell believers and regenerate hearts. The Bible will continue to be God's word. God will still answer prayer, and the church will continue to be God's community, instruments of his love and grace to a hurting world. Theologically speaking, we live in a period of time called the last days. And in the New Testament, the last days is the period of time between Jesus' first coming and his return. That's the last days. Now, after 2,000 years, I think we at least live in the lastest, laster days and probably the lastest days. And the question is, what are you going to do about that information? How, will that, how, what, how, do you, how can you be prepared for the future? And so that's what I want to talk about today, because we live 
in an ocean of in a myriad of voices and messages. And so this is one message that I think our culture tends to, to propagate. This is a clip from the movie Dead Poet Society, where Robin Williams plays the role of an English teacher at a boys' prep academy. And this is like the first day of class. He takes his, his students out into the hall. And check out Robin Williams' message to his students. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. If you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? Carpe diem, seize the day, make your lives extraordinary. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to live an extraordinary life. I don't want to settle for mediocrity or average. But notice the assumption, the premise behind this is because this life is all there is. You're going to end up as fertilizer for daffodils. You're just going to be worm food, is how he puts it earlier in his little speech. This life is all there is, so seize the day. Well, the assumption that this life is all there is, that's the problem. That's, that's what I have a problem with. An old beer commercial back in the day said, you only go around once in life, so you might as well grab for all the gusto you can. Or a, a corollary to that might be, if you're going to be on board the Titanic, you might as well go first class. And see, the Bible is countercultural to that notion. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 30, and your, verse 33 is there in your life notes. But this is what the Apostle Paul says before that, listen carefully, he says, and why do you think I keep risking my neck in this dangerous work? I looked death in the face practically every day I live. Do you think I'd do this if I wasn't convinced of your resurrection and mine as guaranteed by the resurrected Messiah, Jesus? Do you think I was just trying to act heroic when I fought the wild beasts at Ephesus, hope, hoping it wouldn't be the end of me? Not on your life. It's resurrection, resurrection, always resurrection. That undergirds what I do and say and the way I live. And then this is in your life notes. If there is no resurrection, we eat, we drink, the next day we die, and that's, the, that's all there is to it. But don't fool yourselves. Don't let yourselves be poisoned by this anti-resurrection loose talk. You see, the reason I don't believe that this life is all there is is because Jesus Christ is a real man in history. He really died on a cross, and he really rose from the dead. I have no explanation for the empty tomb, 
the appearances of Jesus, the changed lives of the disciples, or the existence of the church. These are the stubborn facts of history that refuse to go away. And so the resurrection of Jesus is demonstration that this life is not all that there is, and your destiny is to go beyond fertilizer for daffodils or being food for worms. I have a friend who is a doctor, and he confided in me on one occasion. He said, this diagnosis of being terminally ill, he said, that's really an oxymoron because we're all terminal. And I've been a chaplain to hospice workers. Hospice workers are my heroes. They have an incredibly stressful job. They care for the dying. But one reason why it's so stressful and why they need a chaplain is because they live in mortal time. Mortal time is the conscious awareness that our lives are finite. And the fact is that human beings aren't wired to live for any length of time in mortal time. It's too stressful. That's why we do, that's why we do denial so well when it comes to our own mortality. But the problem is that we end up living like we aren't dying and we can have the wrong priorities. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break it and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in, in, in and steal. And right there, Jesus gives us a template for deciding what is important versus what is not important. And this is his conclusion. What is important and what is most important is determined by what will last forever. That's how you determine what is most important from that which is not. What lasts forever, that's what our lives are to be consumed with. But first, Jesus gives us examples about what doesn't last. And he says, first, his conclusion is, it's not about stuff. That's not what it's about. That's not what's ultimately important. He says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths eat. And that is a reference to clothes. Clothes from goodwill are going to get eaten by moths the same as clothes from Nordstrom. That's the, that's the reality. And I'm not saying that clothes aren't important. God knows that we need clothes. And he promises in scripture to meet our needs in this area. Well, here's the question though. How many clothes do you need? You know what the biblical answer is? How many clothes can you wear at once? That's what you need. All the rest is abundance. Because the fact is, when do moths eat your clothes? When they're in storage, when they're in the closet, right? I've never had the experience of having moths attack my clothes while I'm wearing them, walking down the street and all get attacked by moths. That doesn't happen. It happens in storage. So this is a picture of abundance. God promises to meet our needs when it comes to clothes, but to think that that's what's ultimately impact, you know, important, and I think also by extrapolation uh, that our appearance is what's ultimately important, that, again, doesn't last. I'm, I'm looking forward to a reality series called Botox Gone Bad, you know, because... <laughs> Appearance doesn't last either. That's not what's important. Well, secondly, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust destroys. Now, for me, I take that as a reference to cars. I know that there weren't too many cars back in the first century of Jesus' day. First century, he probably would have been talking about swords and plowshares, things of metal. But again, those things don't last. But cars are critical to our, our economy. My first car was a 1954 Chevy. It had been rear-ended, had a steering wheel the size of a truck tire, had vacuum-advanced windshield wipers, which meant when you stepped on the gas, the windshield wiper stopped working. 
the uh, interior looked like it had been attacked by zombies and it barely survived the zombie apocalypse. And it was three-tone. It, it was oxidized white, oxidized green, and rust-colored. I bought it for $35 and drove it to the senior prom. Went to this really fancy restaurant and the valet acted like he didn't want to touch it. So I'd actually tip him extra to get him to park my car. Fast forward a couple of years and my sister owned a Jag at the time and she was going out of town, asked if I would watch her babysitter Jag for while she was out of town. I thought, yeah, I could do that. And I tell you what, driving that Jag, I could get used to that car. People noticed me in that Jag. Now they noticed me in the 54 Chevy, but that was way different. <laughs> but guess what? Both those cars are gonna end up on the rust pile. They're both gonna be consumed by rust. And then Jesus says, do not store for yourselves <clears throat> treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal. And I take this as a reference to cash. Cash, do, re, me. Money has this alluring attraction for the human heart. I think a recent evidence of that is all the fanfare regarding the Powerball lottery. Now, the Powerball jackpot was $1.6 billion, but I did a little bit of uh, research. If you live in the United States, your chance of being struck by lightning in your lifetime is one in 3,000. Your chance of being attacked by a shark is one in 11.5 million. So that means you're far more likely to get both struck by lightning and attacked by a shark than you are to ever win the Powerball. You know, those, that's just the mathematical probability. At least there's the, the, the disclaimer not to be used for investment purposes. You think? My favorite definition of the lottery is attacks on people who are bad at math. When I was in college, I got a job at a 7-Eleven food store. It was in a sketchy part of town. Uh, I was working graveyard shift about two weeks before Christmas. <clears throat> about 4 a.m. in the morning, a gentleman walks in wearing a ski mask. I thought, oh, great, is he going to rob me or what? And sure enough, he pulls out a 45 semi-automatic pistol and points at me. And he said, go to the cash register, open it up, take all the money out, put it in a brown paper bag and give it. So I did that. I handed it to him. And he said, now I want you to lay on your stomach on the floor. I did that. And then he did something I wasn't expecting. He put the gun to my head. I'm thinking, well, he's wasting his time right now. He should be making his getaway. What is he doing? And then he cocked the trigger to the gun. And it's, I realized this guy intends to blow me away right now. He wants to do away with any witnesses. And so I began to pray in earnest, I might add. And he held the gun there for what seemed like an eternity. I'm sure it was just a couple of minutes. And finally I heard him say, don't move, stay right there. I'm going to keep an eye on you. And then I heard him go out the electric eye of the front door. He ended up getting away with a grand total of like $50 cash. He was willing to blow me away for 50 bucks. That is the alluring power of money with the human heart. That's why Jesus characterized it as a rival deity. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. That is the Aramaic word for wealth. And he characterized it as a rival God that wants to capture our attention, our allegiance. And Jesus says, it can't be done. You cannot serve both. You have to make a choice. But see, not only is money alluring, it is also transient in nature. In 2008, what happened? The recession happened. Now, at the beginning of 2008, if you had purchased $1,000 of shares of AIG stock, at the end of the year, you would have had $33 left. 
If you'd purchased $1,000 of Lehman Brothers, you would have had zero. If you'd purchased $1,000 of stock in Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, it would have been worth five bucks. But if you had purchased $1,000 worth of beer, drank it all, and then turned the cans for recycling, you'd have had $114. (laughs) As an investment strategy, you could call that a 401k. (laughs) Wealth is transitory. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. See, when it comes to stuff, it's all going to burn. And I like having a house and laptops and home entertainment systems, smartphones. Those are great. But they are not of ultimate importance. Materialism is a hallmark of our culture. But at the end of the day, it is a form of idolatry. One business executive said in an interview, he said, I found the road to success to be no easy matter. I started at the bottom, I worked 14 hours a day, I sweated, I fought, I schemed, I took abuse. I did things that others might not approve of, but I kept climbing the ladder. And the interviewer said, and now you're a success? He said, well, I wouldn't say that, just quote me as saying I've become an expert at climbing ladders. Jesus asked this question in Matthew 16, verse 26. What kind of a deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade your soul for? The story is told of two young people who one night broke into a department store. They didn't steal or destroy anything. Instead, what they did was they switched the price tags. And you can imagine the chaos and the confusion the next morning when the store opened and diamond rings were selling for 10 bucks. Shaving cream, a can of it was $300. Umbrellas for $1,000 and gold necklaces for $5. But see, that's a picture of what our culture has done. We've inverted our values and priorities. And I've shared about the occasion where my wife and I were hit by a logging truck and we lost our son in that accident. We spent, we were pretty busted up. We spent four months in hospital beds. And when you have four months in a hospital bed, you have some time to think and reflect. And one reason why that was such a catalytic event for me was not just because of the pain, but because of the takeaway, what I learned from it. And the main thing that I got from that was this. The only thing that will last forever is relationships in Christ. That's it. And so by comparison, nothing else matters. Relationships in Christ. It's all about relationships. It's not about stuff. And Jesus put it this way, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And the order of our relational priorities goes like this. Now, this is where I'm at in my season of life. If you're in a, in a dis- different season, you can interpolate it because I think it's still pretty clear. It might be a little bit different, but the order is still the same and it, it goes in ascending order. Because first is faith. That has to do with our relationship with God. That is of paramount importance. The Bible says we have relationship with God through faith. That's number one. That's what endures. James 4, verse 13 Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And see, we tend to think that this life and the things in it are so important and so urgent. James says that your life is just a mist. One translation says a fog, or another one says a vapor. 
compared to the steam that rises from a cup of coffee, your life is that significant without God. See, the problem isn't that to make plans, it's that we make plans without God in the equation. And I know how easy it is to get caught up and to lose the race with rats. I think most men start pursuing the good life with noble motives, with honorable intentions. We want to provide for our family and prove our standard of living. But see, the race can become so all-consuming that we lose our way. And we mistake what meant to be a means to an end for the end in and of itself. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Well, what things? The context is clear. Food, clothing, and shelter. God promises to meet our needs in this area. And so it's supposed to be Seek first the kingdom of God, and he'll meet our needs in this area. But I'm pretty convinced that if you were to, a visitor from another planet and you saw how believers in America li- live their lives, you might conclude that Jesus said something to the effect like, well, seek who you're going to marry and what college you're going to go to and what career you're going to have and what house you're going to buy. And then if there's any time left over, seek the kingdom of God. But that's not how it's supposed to work. See, if you don't get anything else right, get this right. Relationship with God is number one. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. See, what God wants is that we love him and we love other people. Love is paramount. Growing in my relationship with God means I'm growing in love. This means that if somebody spoke evil of me last year and I got angry, but if somebody speaks evil of me this year, I say, well, God bless that person. I have grown in love. And if somebody speaks evil of me next year, I say, God, thank you that I've been counted worthy to suffer for your name's sake. I have grown in love. But if somebody last year spoke evil of me and I got angry and this year speaks evil of me and I get angry, I haven't grown. But pastor... I'm uber committed. I go to church at least twice a month. I give 2.5% of my income. I'm not usually involved in a life group. You can see how committed I am. It doesn't matter. If you don't, if you don't love, you haven't grown. What good does it do to go from a church of 1,000 people who don't love to a church of 10,000 people who don't love? And if I want to be precise, it's not a matter of loving God. That's not the place to begin, really. The place to begin is receiving God's love because we cannot give what we don't have. Make that your number one priority, learning to receive the love of God. A story that comes out of World War II about a Japanese prisoner war camp. It was run by a ruthless commander. And at the end of one grueling work day, he announced that a shovel had been stolen. And so he assembled all the prisoners in the courtyard. And he said, well, the man who stole the shovel step forward. If that man doesn't step forward, I'm going to begin shooting prisoners. And everybody knew, everybody in the camp knew that he would make good on his threat. And so he repeated it again. And finally, after a bit of silence, one man stepped forward. And he was taken aside in front of the entire camp, shot and executed. And later that night, it was revealed that the Japanese had actually miscounted. All the shovels were accounted for. But see, that's what Jesus has done for us. He voluntarily laid down his life so that we would live. That's why we can love him. Loving God is the place to begin with priorities. 
Well, the second priority is family. In the Bible and the New Testament, there is a correlation between our relationship with God and marriage. It's the way Ephesians 5.25 puts it in the message. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church. And so if love for, for Jesus rates a 10 on a scale of importance, love for my wife is at 9.9. My wife is a stone-cold fox. She's easy to love. But it's important I keep that priority, that, that list in order because if I make my marriage more important than my relationship to God... Jesus' love is sacrificial. My love can be pretty selfish. And so I find that if I put my wife above God, my love for her actually becomes more selfish and less pure. And it's not fair to her. You know, who can compete with God, right? And that is a form of idolatry. So Jesus is 10. My wife is 9.9. My kids, 9.8. And I find that a lot of parents don't know that. It's, it's a little bit counterintuitive because when kids come on the scene, you look, you know, they're so demanding. They take all of your focus, all of your time, all of your attention. In fact, all three of my daughters have had babies within the last year or so, and I've had to remind each one of them there's a reason why parents have little to no memory of the first year of their children's lives, because they're all sleep deprived. You know, it's all about the kids' sleep schedules. But see, it's imp- you know, the best gift I can give my kids is to teach them about Jesus, but the next best gift I can give my kids is to love my wife because that's is what will give them security. And, you know, there's a phenomenon that's going on recently. Still, the most common year for divorce in terms of years of marriage is year number one. More divorces happen in the first year of marriage than any other year. But a recent phenomenon is developing where the second most common year for divorce is year number 30. And that's the empty nest syndrome kicking in where parents have invested so much in kids that when the kids leave the house, there's no marriage left. And so give, have, have the right priorities in your family. Now, sometimes I get my priorities out of whack. I'll get frustrated with my wife and she drops down to a 9.2 or an 8.5. I need a little attitude adjustment and put her back at 9.9 where she belongs. Well, then the third relational priority is friends. Friendships, in Christ are so important. I was raised in Northern California where there are redwood trees and redwood trees are awesome and majestic. They're the world's largest and tallest living things. They're resistant to bugs. Forest fires don't kill them. In fact, I understand that given the right climate conditions, redwood trees could theoretically live forever. They're amazing, but they have one weakness. Because of their, they have a shallow root system and because of their massive size, they tend to be top-heavy. So a stiff breeze that would just bend over a willow tree can topple a mighty redwood. And that's why redwood trees grow in groves or in groups because that way, literally, their roots, though shallow, they spread out and they literally interlock with each other and they bear each other's burdens. That is a pictorial way description of, in nature, of Galatians 6.2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. You know, that's why we have life groups. Get into a group, develop relationships. It's critically important. See, and not only do we encourage you to develop relationships with believers for encouragement in your faith, but learn to develop relationships with non-believers so that they too might experience the goodness and the grace and the love of God. 
Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A couple of years ago, I asked one young man to lead a Bible study. He was incredibly gifted, but he was also very busy. He said, Pastor, I'd love to, but I'm a full-time student. I have a full-time job. You can see how busy I am. But then one day, he fell in love. And I was amazed to see how much discretionary free time he all of a sudden had. <laughs> now, he still had school. He still had his job. What well, made the difference? Was it a miracle? No, it was love that made the difference. When I was first married, my wife and I had a microwave oven, and at one occasion it stopped working, so I took it to the microwave repairman. This guy was really into microwave ovens, and he was ranting and raving about what a great kitchen appliance this was. They don't make these like these anymore. Turned out the only thing wrong with it was that there's a spider web inside, and he cleared it out. It was good as new, but this guy thought my microwave oven was like the greatest thing ever. He was passionate about microwave ovens. Now, that's fine, but I think that there are more important things to be passionate about than just microwave ovens. I suggest making Jesus Christ your number one priority. And the key to that is, the key to priorities is attach high value. Attach high value. That is a conscious choice on your part. Say, I am going to treasure this, to make this my main thing, and Jesus promises if you do that, your heart will engage. Your heart will follow. But see, the problem is that we live life in reverse a lot of times. We're, we're told, follow your heart. And so that can lead us into trouble, though. Jesus says, no, be more front brain than that. Be more intentional. Make him your number one treasure and your heart will engage. And I, and I hear guys say, well, you know, I'm not the emotional type. And I can relate. I, I get that. But then I go to a Blazers game with them or I watch a football game with them and it turns out that they are emotional after all. <laughs> In fact, if you've ever been angry, you can be passionate because it is a similar set of emotions just with a different focus. And I've heard people say, well, we can't get too emotional in worship. And again, I'm not into emotional manipulation or anything, but how would it sound if I said, well, I love my wife, I just can't get too emotional about it. See, God wired us with emotions. We get into problems when we do let our feelings do the driving. But if we make that conscious choice to value and treasure this, God's promise is the way we're wired is that our heart will follow, our heart will engage. And that's the process that he has outlined for us. The apostle Paul made the paradigm shift of going from thinking temporal stuff is important to making Jesus Christ his treasure. Philippians 3, verse 8, he says, What is more... I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And in that passage, Paul lists all of his accomplishments. And his resume is impressive. He was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, blameless under the law. Paul had passion but he had the wrong priority. And he counts all those accomplishments as garbage, though the word literally means piles of manure compared to knowing Jesus. And sometimes I hear testimonies from people about how much they've given up and sacrificed since coming to Christ. See, that's not meant to be the focus. It's not about when you gave up to Christ because, friend, you didn't give up anything that you weren't supposed to have anyway. I'll tell you what I gave up when I came to Jesus. I gave up my guilt. I gave up my sin. I gave up death. I gave up bondage. That's what I gave up. 
And what I lost, it wasn't because I lost anything, it's because I gained something. The all-surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Why do we make Jesus our treasure? Because he is so worth it. That's why. I know of a preacher named Glenn Wheeler. His wife died a couple of years ago, and he said, it's the little things that you miss. He said, after church, I'd lock up the building, and we'd walk to the car. She'd slip her arm through mine, and she'd say, you're a good man, Glenn. You're a good man. And I miss hearing her say, you're a good man, Glenn. And he said, I miss her cooking, and my, could she cook? And Glenn looked like he's had some good cooking in his day. And he said, after a meal, she'd clean up and say, keep your fork. And I knew what that meant. That meant dessert, the best part. And boy, could she really make dessert. And when I'm at a restaurant by myself, I miss hearing her say, keep your fork, Glenn. But what keeps me going is when I'm in bed and I'm so alone, I can hear the voice of God saying, keep your fork, Glenn, keep your fork. The best is yet to be. When I was in high school, I actually had adults tell me, make the most of your time in high school because these are the best years of your life. And when I heard that, I thought, that's really depressing. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than this. Now, I have nothing but good memories of high school, good times. But you know what? As an adult, I wouldn't go back to high school for anything, would you? No way. It gets way better as an adult. You know, that's a metaphor for life and eternal life. Life is amazing. Eternal life is awesome. And I found this to be tremendously encouraging. I came across this this past couple days. This is an actual radio ad that is airing in Iowa before the Iowa caucuses. It's for the presidential election. And this is from a candidate, a man running for U.S. president. And this is what his radio ad says. Listen carefully. Our goal is eternity, the ability to live alongside our creator for all time, to accept the gift of salvation offered by Jesus Christ. The struggle on a daily basis as a Christian is to remind ourselves of this. The purpose of life is to cooperate with God's plan. To those who have been given much, much is expected, and we will all be asked to account for that. Were your treasures stored up in heaven or on earth? And to me, I try to allow that to influence me in everything I do. I'm blank, blank, and I approve this message. Now, I didn't say the name because I don't want to be perceived as endorsing a particular candidate. But that is right on. Are your treasures stored up in earth or in heaven? That's the question. And so I'm going to refer you to a couple of growth challenges that are in your program. There's two. One is this. I will memorize Matthew 6.21. And if you have a hard time memorizing Scripture, this one is easy peasy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And not only memorize, see the purpose of memorizing it so that, is that you'll integrate it into your life. And so this is number two. I will commit to making Jesus Christ my treasure. And maybe you've already done that and you are doing that. That's awesome. Keep going that road. But maybe you've done that in the past and you've, gotten, you've lost your way. And you need to have your priorities realigned. Commit to making Jesus Christ your treasure again. And maybe you've never done that. You've met, never made Jesus your number one priority, the main thing. You can do that right now. We're going to close in prayer. And if you have made Jesus your treasure, would you pray out loud? And if you'd like to make him your treasure, would you also pray out loud as we wrap up this service? Jesus, come into my life.
and forgive my sins. Thank you for loving me and giving me eternal life. I make you my number one priority. In Jesus' name, amen.